Hi everyone, Nicolette Richet here, host of the Eat Real to Heal podcast. And I have to start off by saying that this particular podcast today is extremely moving for me. I am here in my office in Whistler, BC, recording the intro to this podcast with Dr. T. Colin Campbell, who I interviewed about a month ago. And the reason that this intro, recording this intro, is very emotional for me right now is for two reasons. First, Dr. Colin Campbell needs absolutely no introduction in the world of plant-based, whole food, organic, clean eating to be able to prevent, stop, and even reverse cancer and other chronic degenerative diseases. He is legendary for the research and the work that he has done to prove, to show, and to teach that food is in fact medicine. For those who are new to the concept that food is medicine, and for those who've been misled by the medical and the food industry to believe that your diet and the food that you put into your mouth daily does not affect your health, or that it may not be directly linked to the host of chronic health issues that you are battling now. And for those listeners that haven't accessed the hundreds of scientific studies that show that we can turn our genes for cancer and other diseases on and off simply by changing the food that we consume, well, then you may not know who Dr. T. Colin Campbell is, but I am going to dive into his bio shortly. But the other reason why this podcast is so moving and emotional for me is because I was introduced to Dr. Colin Campbell directly through a a very, very dear friend of mine, Howard Strauss. And Howard is the grandson of Dr. Max Gerson. And I teach the Gerson therapy. It's something that I've been teaching for the last 11 years. It's the foundation of our businesses, the Green Mustache and Richer Health and Richer Health Retreat Center and my PhD research and everything that I have been living and practicing for the last, everything that I've been living and practicing for the last 22 years. Now, one of the very last emails I received from Howard, who has over the past few years become a very dear friend of mine, it was an email where he introduced me to Dr. Colin Campbell and said, I need to get him on the show. And he introduced us and then voila, here we are recording the intro with Dr. Colin Campbell, a superhero alongside Dr. Max Gerson in my mind and in the minds of so many people. However, a few short weeks ago on June 10th, Howard passed away suddenly, leaving thousands of people, including myself and Dr. Colin Campbell, stunned by his sudden death. So it is with great sadness that I record this intro as I'm reminded all too much about Howard and our friendship and all the great things he did in this world to carry on the scientific and proven principles of the Gerson therapy. He was a renegade, just like his mother Charlotte Gerson was, and just like Dr. Max Gerson was, and just like Dr. Colin Campbell himself is. However, amidst the sadness of recording this intro, it's also a great joy that I record this intro, because if it wasn't for Howard, I may not have had the opportunity to bring this incredible interview with Dr. Colin Campbell to you at this moment. There's no doubt I would have found a way to interview Dr. Colin Campbell, but it would not have been the same thing as having Howard introduce us directly. Also, this show is a testament to Howard's life. 
This show is an honor of Howard, is a total honor of Howard and all the brilliant work he did in this world to teach people about food as medicine and that cancer can be reversed, that chronic diseases of all kinds can be reversed by reversing nutrient deficiencies and by using clean, organic, nutrient-dense food and by eliminating toxins out of our environment and ultimately directly out of our bodies. Howard Strauss, if by any chance you are out there in this world right now and able to hear the show, this show is for you, my friend. Without further ado, it is a great honor to introduce Dr. T. Colin Campbell to our Eat Real to Heal podcast. Dr. Colin Campbell was born in 1934. He's a famous American biochemist. He specializes in nutrition on long-term long-term health. He is the Jacob Gold Sherman Professor Emeritus of Nutritional Biochemistry at Cornell University. And that's just the beginning. Uh, if you want to get to know more about Dr. Campbell and the work that he's done, please read his book, Um, He's a huge, his books, I should say, he's a huge advocate of the low-fat, whole foods, plant-based diet. He's the author of over 300 research papers and three books entitled The China Study and another book called Whole and the Low-Carb Fraud. Also, he's been interviewed by so many people, so you can watch hundreds of interviews, watch hundreds of YouTube videos online, and also watch Forks Over Knives, the famous documentary that really has converted so many people into being huge plant-based advocates. So please watch that documentary in which he is also behind that documentary as well as being featured in it. Now, Dr. Colin Campbell is one of the lead scientists behind the China Cornell Oxford Project on Diet and Disease that was done in 1983. Super important. You can read all about that in the China study itself. Um, In addition to Dr. Colin Campbell having joined MIT as a research research associate, he also um, worked for over 10 years in the Virginia Tech Department of Biochemistry and Nutrition and he's an advisory board member on the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. And he was also the senior science advisor to the American Institute for Cancer Research. Now, he also founded the Center for Nutrition Studies, which is an amazing online program that you can take. It's a six-week program. Please, everybody sign up for it if you want to learn about food as medicine and how to stop and arrest and prevent and reverse chronic disease. Sign up for this program through eCornell, so it's through Cornell University. So without going on and on about, you know, through Dr. Colin Campbell's long resume of incredible work that he's done on this planet to advance science and research around food as medicine. Uh, Let's jump into the Eat Real to Heal podcast, redo that. Let's jump into this podcast and hear directly from Dr. Colin Campbell about everything that he's up to now and the legacy that he's leaving behind and the projects that he is creating now at 86 years of age, which is truly remarkable. It is never too late to create new programs to advance our societies to make our existence on earth better. And Dr. Colin Campbell is truly a hero. He's a healing hero. He's a wellness warrior. He's a renegade. And 
you need to learn as much as you can about this man and pass on that information to your family members and start making the lifestyle changes today to turn your health and your life around. So please share this episode with everybody that you know, tell us what you think and enjoy. Hello, Dr. Campbell. It is such a pleasure to have you on our Eat Real to Heal show today. Thank you. It's my pleasure, for sure. Um, and are you in your home in California? Is that where you are right now? No, I'm in my home in upstate New York. Oh, upstate New York. Why did I think you're in California? I'm at uh, Cornell University or just outside of the town. That's right. Okay, that's. Um, and are you? Do you spend a lot of time at the university, or is most of the, everything done online? No, I I, uh, I still have a position at the university, but it's emeritus, so I can come and go when I want to. Okay. But more importantly, uh, I also have a nonprofit organization in my Tell name, nutritionstudies.org. Uh, that's in town, so I spend some time there and the rest of the time on lectures, writing books. I'm just finishing up another book. What's that book that you're working on? Well, I, I have to tell what the first China study was the first one uh, well, I was just basically attempting to explain what I had learned over the decades of my work. And, and then later I put the book out whole, which went into a little more sophisticated discussion of how nutrition works. This in turn uh, is about um, how, how is all this applied? How do we get to know what we know? Uh, why don't we know what we should know? And why has nutrition as a science been so misinterpreted? So can you, know, you let's ages. go from that. How, why has nutrition been so misinterpreted? Because, uh, you know, for all the listeners out there, you know, Dr. Colin Campbell has, T. Colin Campbell has, you know, been writing about the subject, teaching about the subject, studying and researching food as medicine, nutrition as medicine for decades. But even still, and we have so many other physicians that are out there and PhDs and researchers, but it still feels like such a small percentage of the population um, has no idea about food as medicine. So why has it not been taken up? So readily. Well, I'm just now writing a book on that subject, exactly that question. Why has it been taken up? Why is it confusing? And just for a little background, uh, there's not a single medical, medical school in the country or North America for, or elsewhere that actually teaches nutrition. Which raises the question, why not? Um, and also, uh, in the United States, at least, uh, physicians don't have an opportunity to be reimbursed for services if they want to talk about this. It's kind of on their own time. So nutrition has been an out, outside science. Um, and so uh, what I got interested in uh, some many years ago when I spent a year at Oxford University in England was to go back into history and sort of see if I could learn something about, you know, why did we end up with the nutrition message that we have now that seems to be so new and why hasn't that been known before? And so the current book I'm now writing, just about done, uh, is uh, just about that story. And what I learned from that earlier history, uh, and that's part of this book in this case, uh, basically was that uh, back in the 1800s, late 1700s, as a matter of fact, in the case concerning cancer, which was my specialty in, in many ways, um, I wanted to know, you know, why there wasn't anything said about nutrition and cancer. Learned, in fact, there was something said at the time. 
And it really came from the idea that cancer was either was some kind of disease, for which there were two hypotheses. One hypothesis basically said that cancer is a local disease. Surgeons like that idea because they just simply said, well, we'll cut it out. Yeah. Uh, the alternative view was it was a, whole, a, a more constitutional disease, meaning holist disease, in which case the whole body is sort of participating. That's where nutrition happens to be. That's where it would be. Because nutrition is everything working together, basically. It's not a single nutrient. So things work together, and that's the fascination about this topic. Uh, So it would be a more holist kind of approach. Or let's say in the 1800s, that would be called a constitutional approach, constitutional nature of disease. So they argued about that a great deal during the 1800s. Which is it, local or is it constitutional? They finally decided that cancer is a local disease, which means recent surgery, cut it out. Or a little bit later, use chemotherapy, where you could actually have targeted drug therapy. Or thirdly, use radiation, which you can narrow down and focus it, if you will. So there's three kinds of uh, modalities or or, uh, therapies that might be used that we still have today. And quite frankly, they're all poor in many cases. They don't do quite what they should do. But there there was some major lessons there. Nutrition got left out. It got left out. And finally, that was in the middle 1800s, late 1800s, uh, early 1900s, when all the cancer business started to get going. By that time, almost no one wanted to mention nutrition. Only occasionally would have mentioned something like this. And when they would mention it, it was pretty spectacular what they would say. Uh, so, but it got forgotten. And uh, one of the reasons I think it got forgotten, too, was that nutrition was considered to be primarily uh, an effect, a biological effect, largely dependent on the consumption of animal-based foods, more particularly in a nutritional sense, based on the effect of animal protein. And did they know, how long ago did they know this? Well, the protein was discovered in 1839, and it was said to be the stuff of life itself. I mean, it really went out with a grand opening of a grand baptism, and so it always became the center of the plate. Uh, They didn't think that time that Plants also have protein. They generally all thought of protein being from animals. So it really was a sort of surrogate for consuming uh, animal-based foods. And so uh, some of these statements about nutrition having an effect, not necessarily saying how, some of these uh, statements were uh, made as early as the early 1800s. There was a, a medical doctor in the early 1800s, about 1805, who actually wanted to study the effect of vegetables on cancer. And he was turned down. In 1805. And he was turned down again to just do some research. And then throughout the 1800s, uh, all the time, when somebody measured something about nutrition, it was always, oh, we don't know what that is. You know, which, which is it? This one, that, or something else? And so it just by the 1900s, by the time the 1900s rolled around, rolled around, it was all about animal protein being the center of the nutrition discussion. Yeah. Uh, and there were some people at that time, really serious people, saying, you know, it's animal protein that causes the problem. That got shot down immediately. If they talked about nutrition in general, there was no place in, at the table for that kind of idea. It was all about targeted drug therapy or assuming that cancer is a local disease. This applies for other uh, chronic diseases as well, as I should say. I should say. 
So all the, all during that time, anytime that the word nutrition came up, it was always about talking about single nutrients. That particularly that it became particularly prominent during the 1920s and 1930s when some of the vitamins were being discovered. But nobody could really put their finger on which nutrient it was that might be involved in cancer. Well, there is no such thing as a single nutrient being involved in cancer. If there's any, it's animal protein, not because it, of its own activity, but because it's of its effect on the total diet. In any case, so the story went on and on. Finally, in 1980, uh, our National Academy of Science in the United States convened a study, organized a study of uh, 13 experts, so to speak, organized a committee to look into this question concerning the effect of diet on cancer. And I was one of the 13. That was in 1980. We spent two years, the 13 of us, talking about this question. What effect, what evidence do we have that nutrition might be involved in cancer? We came up with a conclusion, a suggestion, and we said basically uh, to cut down fat intake because that was sort of the popular idea at that time. Fat is related to cancer and so forth and so on. And we said that. Uh, it it, it uh, basically uh, began a really serious pushback from the industry. And that's a whole story unto itself. And the industry, this, I'm talking about pharmaceutical industry and the livestock industry in particular. Okay, so that's the part that I really want to um, just know a little bit more about because, you know, I've been working with clients on the reversal of disease, chronic disease, all different types, cancers included, and where we teach the Gerson therapy. So it's, you know, at the end of the day, it's a plant-based, whole foods, low fat, low, um, you know, low protein. I mean, it's high protein, vegetable protein, but low to no animal fat protein. And, you know, the number one question people ask me is, why doesn't my doctor know about this? So then I explain why, you know, doctors aren't taught nutrition in med school. And then the second thing they say is, well, is it the pharmaceutical industry that's against this? But the part that I think people really need to know about, it's that connection between not just the pharmaceutical industry and the medical associations, but it's also the food industry. Right? And if they haven't watched these documentaries, a lot of people don't realize the amount of pressure that's put on to uh, nutritarians or anybody who's talking about food as medicine. So can you talk about that a little bit? What does that look sure. like, that pushback? Yeah, well, that's uh, very much part of my story. It's going to be part of the, the story in my book. Okay. Because uh, my story uh, goes back even before 1980, but particularly during the National Academy of Science report at that time, uh, and been the only only one of two uh, nutritional biochemists on that committee. The others were uh, epidemiologists or cancer researchers or something like that. Uh, in any case, when the report came out, and we said some things about nutrition that uh, kind of irritated the industry to some extent, uh, and because I was the one who was then chosen to give testimony before uh, the U.S. congressional committees, and I was on national TV and so forth and so on, I became the face of that report at the time to some extent, at least in my community. And uh, that report, by the way, was the most sought after report in the history of the National Academy of Sciences. So it, it, it actually um, uh, caused a big, uh, a lot of publicity, a lot of discussion about it. And then with my sort of being on, you know, before congressional committees and on so forth, television and so forth, um, the, my society in the area of nutritional biochemistry really took it to me. I was fairly prominent in what I was doing in my society. 
I had just been named uh, by the uh, council, the executive council, to be the next president of the society. Uh, and so when they heard my voice talking like this, they figured I had betrayed the entire nutrition community. And so there was a petition put forward to have me investigated and to be thrown out of the, expelled from the society. The first time this had happened in their 60 year history. So there was a hearing, I didn't get thrown out, but that's what happened. And then at the same time, the, instead of becoming president, that vote was null and void. I didn't become that, but that set a pattern thereafter for all sorts of attacks that occurred constantly from then until now. It happened both at the national level as well as the local level in the case of my university. Uh, I was able to maintain and go forward with this uh, in large measure because I had tenure. And so I'm a big, big fan of academic freedom, for example, yeah. which tenure is intended to, to uh, protect. And so part of the book I'm talking about is actually telling that. Why did it happen? Who did what? How far did they go to try to block this? And so I've had many people trying to block what I talk about. Uh, and, one again, and some of it was very serious. Uh, I mean, really ridiculous things like sending around a letter to 32 of the prominent people in this country uh, by the secretary of the American Cancer Society, sending around a letter that I had stolen $20,000 from my grant. Um, and then a little later in 1988, uh, I had the China study going at that time. We had received a lot of funding for that. And I organized a, a sort of an up, upgrade for that study. It really, I think it's still a great idea. I was awarded the funding. It was approved. It was approved with uh, recommended for funding. I went to pick up the money then Washington, took my associate with me. And when I got there, I was presented with a letter that was signed Friends of the Institute of Aging, unsigned. And they alleged at that time that all the work I was doing in China was all a fraud. And the public hadn't learned about the China study at that time. That didn't come out until 1990, it's 1988. And so that if I can't answer that, I've lost the money. I never got the money to do that study. You never and did? I never did that. I, I did the regular China study. That was ongoing. And, you know, we got results out of it and so forth. It's fairly well known, as you know. But the addition to that study, which was the important part of it, where we were going to be working with 500,000 people, saving blood samples in storage, and then simply retrieving them to analyze for various things at the time they got a disease. It was a fantastic idea, I think. And uh, we would have had a lot more information than we have today, but that was blocked. And it was $7 million. They took it away and said I couldn't have it. So um, that's the, I'm just mentioning these kinds of things because uh, then at that time, in the early 1990s, uh, it became particularly difficult. Because at that time, then there's words being spread elsewhere that somehow um, I'm a fraud, <laughs> basically. And, uh, you know, I didn't know what I was talking about. And so it all came down to, if I can summarize this quickly, it came down to um, the fact that um, our work was showing that animal protein was especially prominent in the causation and possible treatment of cancer. That was, that was like pouring gasoline on fire. To say that animal protein might have that effect was really deadly. And that was the reason for this. I should also tell you at Cornell, uh, 
ever since I came back to Cornell in 1975, I was given a full professorship with tenure. So I had all the protection I wanted. And in fact, I, I had uh, a university-based uh, uh, endowment professorship. So, and I had the biggest program, you know, in our department, which was number one in the country. I had the most publications, I brought in all those kinds of things. <laughs> you know, yeah. you don't pay much attention, but everything was going great. So my own reputation was, was uh, I was very happy with it. But this all came into, even at that, even at that, the pressure that was being brought to bear to try to bring down my reputation, get me fired, kicked out of the university, certainly kicked out of my society, all of that came to the forefront. So at that time, I uh, then was given a, I, I got a, took one year's uh, leave to go to Oxford University as a, a so-called visiting scholar at Oxford. And it was there that I got into the literature, the history, because I wanted to know why this, why this uh, vitriol, you know, at, at that time, what, what, is, what is it about it? What in the world am I doing to cause such hate? And so that was the, that was the uh, impetus for my doing the history. And I think I found a great deal about what that was. Yeah, because definitely. in years past, occasionally somebody would come along and answer your question, would say something similar to what I'm saying. And they were kicked out of their society, or they were maligned terribly. So that raised another question too. What is it about our system of medicine, if you will? What is our system, what is it about our medical science field? that would even dare to do something like this. And that's what this book is about. And I think I have the answer to that too. Uh, and it really has to do, as you might expect, uh, with um, a lot of political and economic issues, very clearly. Yeah. But also it has to do in a major way with the way we understand the biochemistry of disease formation, the way we understand the biochemistry of nutrient effect. And so now I'm offering, actually, I've had a couple of papers out on this, but I'm offering a new way to think about nutrition and its relationship to, to health, especially on cancer, heart disease, and things like this. And my views on that also, in part, go back many years. But I'm suggesting that we, I'm redefining, actually, the whole subject of nutrition. Uh, it's going to be close to um, the Gerson I should tell you, the Gerson uh, thing. Uh, Charlotte Gerson was a friend of mine. Yeah. Uh, and we really, we had a, a good relationship. And uh, I don't, I think, agree with, I don't, I should say it this way, I don't understand a couple of things about the Gerson therapy. But in general, it's, it was a, a great uh, idea. Mm -hmm. And it was brought to this country by Max Gerson, as you know, to North America back in the 40s. And he went through a lot of difficulty with that. He, and he had to go outside of the country to do his practice. So um, this whole story, for me, boils down to, more than anything, it's not just about why not use a plant-based diet, which is controversial enough, but it really boils down to the unusual uh, understanding we've had about the basic science of nutrition. And in that sense, what I'm really referring to as much as anything else is the fact that we, in research, my area, medical research, and also medical practice, we tend to focus far too much on what individual nutrients might do. You know, we focus too much on, let's say, treatment of a specific disease. Uh, we talk about treating symptoms, not the getting at the root cause. 
And so all of that special focus came from, uh, I'm suggesting, the local theory of disease. Mm -hmm. Local theory of disease was rejected in the late, late 1800s. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, the constitutional nature of disease was rejected. Exactly. That's the whole view. The local theory of disease won out primarily because that gave an opportunity to focus on individual things, whether they be pills or whether they be a, a narrowly focused beam of, beam of radiation or whether it was surgery. There's yeah. this whole idea of thinking about health and, and diet especially uh, and disease. Uh, there are two opposing views. One is to consider these relationships between food and disease in a holistic sense, everything working together. The other is thinking about it in terms of individual nutrient, individual diseases, individual mechanisms, so forth. And that's, that's the system we're now living with. And that's why medical schools who are what I call reductionists in training, highly, highly reductionists, that's why they do not teach nutrition. Because nutrition is the antithesis in, in uh, philosophical, you know, uh, in, uh, in that sense, from the local theory of disease. So there's two ways of thinking about how to deal with medicine. We chose the wrong path. Uh, it's not to say that the path we have doesn't work. In fact, there are occasions when, you know, it does work. Mm -hmm. You occasionally need maybe a drug or serious conditions, but not to rely on that as, as a lifestyle system of treating people with illness. And uh, I'm basically now making the argument in my lectures and so forth that we've really got to first off understand nutrition. It's a science that's very different from what people have taught and very different from what people have heard. And when we understand that, then we can do amazing things in treating illness. Uh, you know, of course, heart disease has been demonstrated to be able to be reversed quite well. Mm -hmm. Diabetes can also, you can do the same thing. Easy, yeah. And in our research, uh, one of the things that really got me going in this thing was our ability to turn cancer, experimental cancer, on and off right. by nutritional means. So, so um, can you explain that to people a little bit more and talk about that research? Because so many people, like even this morning, you know, I'm reading in the paper that they're out there doing the ride to conquer cancer. And we're so proud that we raised like a hundred million dollars to go towards cancer research. And then followed shortly between like one and two people get diagnosed, you know, every three seconds there's, you know, you know, hundreds of people that are being diagnosed with cancer, but no one, all these people who are raising this money for cancer research, they do not understand the mechanism of disease and the nature of disease. And so of course, all that money gets filtered into surgery, chemo, radiation research, which we are seeing these horrific numbers around cancer, which Max Gerson predicted 100 years ago. He said, if we did not address nutrition as the basis of health, and if we didn't look at the constitution of the individual, then we would see cancer rates being one in two. And sure enough, a hundred years later, his predictions are correct. So if you can just explain that, because I often use that analogy, we can turn the, the genes on and off for cancer as well as turn the genes that protect us from cancer, from these mutated cells, and being able to um, turn and being able to deactivate them or activate um, further mutations. So if you can explain that a little bit more, I think that would be so helpful for people. Well, you're right. 
cancer is generally considered to be a disease that cannot be reversed. The major reason in my, in my uh, understanding of this uh, is that for a long time, especially since the discovery of genes and discovery of DNA, if you will, uh, obviously that goes back a long ways, but especially since that kind of discussion started to become quite active in the 1950s, it's generally been said that cancer is a genetic disease. Everyone says that. If you go on their websites for cancer societies or the National Cancer Institute here in the United States, they'll tell you quickly, cancer is a genetic disease. Now, that being said, what does that mean? Well, it's true that normal cells are converted to cancer cells through a mutation. That's true. Because cancer has its own set of genes or genetically modified cells, if you will. And so that's where it starts. It starts in mutation. Uh, and now these days we know there's lots more mutation might be added as cancer progresses. But in any case, it's a genetic disease. So they say, I disagree 100%. Because if we assume, and this is what I'm publishing a book and I've had one paper on this. If we assume that cancer is a genetic disease, that means it cannot be reversed. So what does that mean? If, we can't, if it can't be reversed, we have to kill the cancer cells selectively, of course, if possible. That's what leads to targeted drug therapy. That's what leads to so-called cytotoxic chemotherapy. That word cytotoxic basically is meaning using drugs to kill cells. So the general approach, or we cut them out, if, if you will. And so that whole philosophy is fundamental to the entire cancer industry, worth hundreds of billions of dollars. If all of a sudden that basic assumption went away, they'd be in serious trouble. So that's what I'm writing about in the book. It's wrong and it should be, it should be addressed forthrightly. Um, since cancer, if you just only assume it's genetics or genes, if you will, uh, and it can't be reversed, then don't bother trying to figure out how to reverse it. Just get some pills or something like that to kill the cancer cells. Now we know that, for example, with cytotoxic chemotherapy, for example, that when a big study was conducted, published in 2009 by a group of Australian and U.S. Uh, researchers, the big study was, it was organized to go back and look at the uh, data, the clinical data of cancer patients to see what kind of uh, effect cytotoxic chemotherapy really was having on cancer patients. Big study. They they enrolled, or not enrolled, but they collected information on 22 different cancers. They had uh, thousands, I don't know what the total number of examinations they had. We came out of the US government uh, website, or, uh, collection of information, mostly. But in any case, well, here's what they learned. They wanted to know if the chemotherapy is working. Well, the metric they used to measure how it's working is the effect that, would, that these drugs would have on, let's say, five-year survival rates. That's the traditional thing they do in cancer research, I should tell you. You know, does it have an effect on, on survival rates? It was shown for these 22 different cancers that these cytotoxic chemicals being used for each of these cancers in the aggregate increased five-year survival rates only by 2.1%. Essentially, it would like have no effect. And I read that study as well. I had come across that years ago. And from what I understand, they redid that study. Isn't that correct? Just recently? Yeah, well, yeah so we, what do you mean we did? Uh, they redid the study. 
just oh, to oh. see if their original data still held true. And right. so I just came across a new paper that also showed um, still the same thing in, you know, since that study was published, there's been no improvement. They still have not been able to right. show that cytotoxic drugs has any, has any effect on the cancer. I mean, it only in about 2%. And the part about that, which I find interesting, is that in many of those cancers, when you break them down, like if it's colon cancer, it has 0% effectiveness, is what that, that same study showed if we're talking about the same one. Yes, I'm sure we are, because uh, I'm... In, uh, the, uh, the, it was uh, increased 2.1%, but quite frankly, uh, arguments were made in that paper, and I happen to agree with that. That, first off, is not st statistically significant. Okay. It's a null effect. There were a couple of cancers where you see some improvement of a few months, maybe, or something, but that doesn't really count in my mind. No. Uh, so 2.1%, there's some, some argument that it might have been higher had, had people done nothing, <clears throat> or done something like the Gerson therapy, let's say, for example. Right. You know, where, where in fact, uh, you know, they could have lived longer uh, because these cytotoxic chemicals that are being used are, as you probably know, they cause cancer themselves. And so, uh, and they're very toxic, uh, obviously, and, and they cause a lot of side effects, really serious side effects. So I think we put the nail in that coffin. They don't work. And uh, so now we have some new ideas like immunotherapy, for example which in principle is almost the same thing. They're, what they're doing in that case, in one case at least, they're recruiting the ability of the immune system to boost cells that kill cancer cells, for, for example, the natural killer cells. Uh, and uh, I'll, I'll come back to that later because we were working on that idea uh, 30 years ago. But so the immunotherapy is still a case where there's interest in taking a, a discovered a drug that can activate something in the immune system, so to speak, to let the body do it. But I think that's still wrong because wow. we don't have control in that kind of case. You know, there's necessarily going to do it in a very selective way. Uh, so and there's still tons of money being poured into that. So I think the whole idea of treating cancer with drugs and ignoring diet, I, I quite frankly, I think is ridiculous. And uh, I'm going to say that you know, in my research, in this case, using experimental animals, the thing that really got me going was being able to turn cancer on and off dramatically. We could increase from zero growth to 100% and back and forth. And what would you do to increase it to 100% and, and then what would you do to decrease it and reverse it? That's right. It was dramatic. The effect it was very quickly how this happened. And we did it by using animal protein because I had gotten the impression in working in the Philippines, I was doing it in my early years, that somehow children were more likely to get a certain kind of cancer, liver cancer, when they were consuming the Western diet. And so I found that strange at the time because I was there and we were there to try to uh, develop a program for female nurse children, making sure they got more protein, not less. Mm -hmm. That was my background. So to see that result or get that impression that I got from talk, talk, learning from these children, that's what started my whole research career. And so when we came along and then tested the effect of uh, protein on the models, we could turn it off. We could turn it. You, you give a diet, let's say it has 20% protein, which is on the high side. 20% uh, of total calories is protein. We turn it on. If we drop it to 5%, 
that's enough for the animal, it certainly lives, but, but it turns off the cancer. So we switched back and forth for 20 or 25. Dramatic results. And I know that if I went now, of course now it's too well, some people know about me too much, but if I went now to, let's say a drug company or investors and show them the data, don't tell them how I did it. If I showed this effect, I am absolutely certain I could get hundreds of millions of dollars immediately available to invest in that, whatever it is I have. There's no question about that. Right. But the moment if I say it's animal protein, it sort of says they show me the door. So it gives, it gives a, you know, basically it's a, it's, it, that's what it is. It's, it is what it is. And is that because the food industry is so tightly knit with the pharmaceutical industry and so tightly knit with the medical industry? That's a good question. I'm not sure. I'm not prepared to say that they are, you know, in collusion. That's a famous word these days. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm not prepared to say they're working together to that end. But the fact of the matter is what they both do serves the same purpose. In other words, the food industry, largely based on the consumption of animal protein, by the way, as you know, meat, milk, and eggs, the food industry uh, makes a lot of money on that. And so, in a sense, to be really caustic about the idea, they feed us or they have us eat the food that causes illness. When we get sick, then the drug industry has the drugs to make us well. So we're being played, you know, the, the public is being played on two ends of that, that idea. One industry is keeping us sick. I'm not sure they sit down and actually talk it that way, but in, in effect, that's what happens. One drug, I mean, one, we eat the wrong food, so we get sick. The other industry said, well, don't worry about that. We got the drugs to make us well. It's a really, really ridiculous and dangerous uh, experiment that's been conducted for decades. And I would say, too, it to me, because when I came across this information, it was when a friend of mine was 72 years old at the time. This is 22 years ago. He did the Gerson therapy for his stage four cancer that had metastasized. He was given three months to live. And, you know, he was my friend's dad. And, you know, Bill was this guy who just like, he wasn't going to take, you know, a three month, you know, life sentence. And so he did the Gerson therapy. He reversed his cancer. He lived another 22 years, which was amazing. And, but the thing is, is that when I started learning about this, I mean, I'm a researcher. I'm doing my PhD right now, um, where oh, we're good. looking at reversing type 2 diabetes with the Gerson therapy and working with indigenous communities, because ultimately the Gerson therapy is a pre-settler or pre-contact lifestyle, right? There's no refined garbage in there. There's none of these refined oils and sugars and refined salts. Like, you know, if you had salt, you got it from the food. If you had sugar, it came naturally from the food and they weren't extracting oils at that time. And so really that's why I wanted to work with indigenous communities as well, because it's quite inexpensive, like eating squashes and potatoes and carrots and things like that. So we can work with these indigenous communities and show them that they had the answer the whole entire time to reversing diabetes, but it means going back to that. So, but I was, I was in disbelief, if you can imagine, because I was doing environmental policy at the time for government, and I didn't know anything about nutritional science. I really knew about environmental toxicity and cancer. So when I found out that food was the answer to cancer that was caused by environmental toxicity, I was 
really in this place where I'm like, how could this be that we don't know this? And then I started to dive into the research and your research. I read the China study back then. Um, and I couldn't believe that this research had been available to us for hundreds of years. We've known that nutrition is the answer to cancer and chronic disease. So to me, it's almost criminal. Like the data has been there. And so right. how, how do we, like, how do we get people to the right people in the right places to look at this data? And I know that you've been trying to do that. And so like, it's, to me, it's almost criminal. Like it really feels like, I don't know. And you show it to these, and you show it to the people who are, you know, in these positions of power to change the medical system, to change the, um, you know, the food system and you show it to, and they just turn a blind eye to it. So how have you been able to persevere all these years in knowing that the research is there? Plus you're contributing to this body of knowledge. Like how do we go forward when the research is there, but people just don't want to look at it? Well, that's the question for my new book. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm trying to address that from different perspectives. And in the previous books that I did, uh, you know, and, and also some publications I've had recently, um, I try to make the case based on just analysis of the science. Right. And basically on the basic fundamental mechanism by which cancer works and the fundamental ways we ought to be considering how nutrition works, if you will. So the science is, is one part of it. Um, and uh, that's, I think that's, that's been very re rewarding for me, but it needs more of the science. Uh, unfortunately, the way it works now, I, instantly I should say before saying this, I spent about 20 years, very active years here in the States, uh, very much involved in policy development, mm. food and health policy. And so I was on a number of the so-called expert panels, uh, mostly in Washington, but also elsewhere. Uh, where we were being requ uh, requested to come up with various kinds of information having to do with food and health. That was quite an experience because that gave me an opportunity to see, if you will, the, the interface between scientific research on the one hand and political and economic interests on the other. That was a, a, a very uh, <laughs> educational, I should say. And uh, so I, I learned a lot you know, about how institutions become involved in this and how institutions take on the concept of what I call groupthink, as a term used by others, and how, in fact, they ended up managing. They actually manage whole societies with this philosophy. And such that, you know, we end up creating, if, the, if enough years pass without that being questioned, then we end up with uh, what I call paradigms, made famous by, you know, before this time. But in any case, we end up with these massive society-wide paradigms where all of a sudden most people, almost just about everyone, is thinking sort of the same way, not, not really um, investigating or questioning the fundamental characteristics of that paradigm. So some things that make a paradigm work, we don't see, we don't question, we just accept it. And so as long as those, those, uh, those structures, that structure is in place, and it is, it's very difficult then to go and, and uh, try to make, uh, make uh, you know, some kind of progress. Um, and I'm trying to do that, in fact, with this book, because I, I'm redefining science, and I think it's really irreparable. And I'm going back and getting research, too, that has been uh, misinterpreted in the past, really major research, and, and just sort of aggregating that information or laying it out so that when we look at it in the aggregate and the collective, it's become so impressive. It's overwhelming. 
And so that is one story. The other story has to do with, as I said, is political and economic considerations. And, and again, I know best the United States uh, system, but I know other Western countries too. I must tell you that in Canada, I've lectured in a number of places in Canada, including McGill University and there in Vancouver and so forth. I, I, the Canada is ahead of the U.S. I, will I say think that. the opposite. I think we're so far behind in Canada. Yeah. Tell me why, yeah. because well, come we to this. Have, like two plant-based doctors here and the U.S. has dozens. Okay. Maybe, maybe, but just remember, you know, in Canada, recently the dietary guidelines in Canada did come up and say something the U.S. has been afraid to say. It's true, yes. The yeah, new plant-based food guide, or the new Canadian food guide is heavily plant-based. Right. Yeah, that's right. we are ahead there. And uh, also in talking to the various institutions in Canada too, uh, they, they, from my perspective, they have a little more, they're a little more open-minded about looking at things more holistically, of course you're saying no, but you should be in the United States, you have to see what I see sometimes. It's true that plant-based, the plant-based idea is getting a bit of a foothold here, but you have Brenda Davis. Yes, we do. Brenda Davis is my lifesaver up here, otherwise I'd be swimming alone in an ocean yeah. full of, yeah, charts. And so you, charts. You have her and, and, and a few others, not too many, I have to agree. Uh, David Jenkins, you probably know his name. Yeah, we just reached out to him as well. Yeah. David's been a longtime uh, acquaintance of mine and in fact, some ways a colleague. Uh, and I've lectured at the University of Toronto, but uh, David was always uh, sort of known. I don't think he minds my saying this, but he, he was generally considered to be, he was kind of in the establishment in a sense, but he was a vegetarian. Right. And he did not want, to, he did not want that to be known. So some of us would say that he's a closet closet vegetarian, <laughs> yeah. but now he's he's changing, and now he's wanting to reach out because he contacted me and he's talking to me a lot about you know some of the same questions you're asking, you know how how can we make progress, you know with it how can you get involved in it? Um, I'm wishing him all the luck in the world, but um, it's uh, it's tough. Uh, so the, there are. There's a guy, James Barnard, in uh, Ontario. What's I don't know about him. Ontario? Do James you know that Bernard. No, James Barnard. He's yeah, not related he's, to Neil in any way, shape, or form, is he? Pardon? He's not related to Neil Barnard, is he? Dr. Neil no, Barnard? No. No relation. And also no relation to another James Barnard in, uh, at the Pritikin uh, uh, Center. Okay. So this James Barnard is a different guy, a person. He spent 10 years early in his medical career working in the Eskimo regions in Northern Canada. Oh, wow. And then he came down and he started working there in, uh, I haven't talked to him in a while, in uh, Windsor. I'm assuming he's Ontario. Okay. Yeah, contact him if you can. I will. Uh, you want to talk to someone. So, um, well, coming back to um, the whole question, why isn't this not working? Uh, you know, why is this so difficult? These kinds of things we're talking about, whether we're talking about institutions or whether we're talking about individuals who manage the institutions or whose research depends on institutional support, whatever those institutions, institutions are. And I mean by that in a larger context, that is to say, even government institutions who in turn are reflecting corporate interests. So to my mind, and to a great extent, they're either working together 
or they're singing the same song. Uh, and they're working on this whole idea that reductionist science is the best way to do things. And I say, no, it is not. Uh, we have to come back to the concept of holist interpretation, which uh, Dr. Gerson sort of certainly practiced, which the therapies, the clinics have been doing ever since. And um, yeah, so uh, coming back to this question concerning, uh, you know, how do we get this out there? Um, I find that the uh, leaders of these institutions, whatever degrees they have, it doesn't really necessarily mean anything to me. Uh, and of course, the public tends not to know because they're not being really told oftentimes, you know, the real information. Uh, and I find a lot of that, I think, I hope, <laughs> can be uh, explained away, you know, by looking at the science more carefully, looking at it differently. I'm, I'm kind of hoping that I might have an opportunity to do that because the China study itself became quite well known, as you probably know. And now actually holds a record. It's the most translated. It's the book has been translated in the most languages of any book what? in history, you know, in the area of, of health and, and medicine. Uh, Dr. Spock, who was a so-called baby doctor years ago, ago this is on the internet. He, he had his second most translations next to the Bible. He had 42. We now have 47. And in Dr. fact, Campbell, uh, that is incredible. And it, and, and, and you know what, it, it doesn't surprise me at all because I think it's one of the most relatable books for people to read as well. Any, you don't have to have a science background. You can pick up that book. You can read it. You get access to such incredible data that even a person who's never heard about nutrition will read that and they can't help but there's that, there's that paradigm shift literally that I find happens when you're reading the China study. Um, which for a lot of people, when they have to piecemeal all the data together, they never reach that paradigm shift because it's their brain has to comprehend too many different um, pieces of information. And your book just explains everything so well from the data to the history and to how the study was conducted. And, you know, that's why I think it's, I mean, it doesn't surprise me. So congratulations on that, by the way. Well, thank you very much. I, I also wanted to ask you, did you see our second book, my second book called Whole? Yes, we do. And I think we sell it at our restaurant. So we have a collection of seven plant-based whole food, 100% organic um, restaurants. So we sell a lot of books through there. And uh, your book is one of them. And both of them, I believe. Right. Well, Whole uh, was, uh, it was a New York Times bestseller. It uh, didn't sell as much but because uh, the times were changing. But Whole is actually, uh, has been uh, attractive for universities to some extent, medical schools and begin to use it as a text or a major reference. Um, and so uh, this new, and the reason I guess I'm saying that is because I'm keeping my fingers crossed that maybe with that uh, background and also with the uh, film, uh, Forks Over Knives, mm -hmm. which was actually started with, a, that was a China study product. Uh, they came to me, uh, two people, the director and uh, the, the the other, the, the, the tall guy who did all the uh, interviewing, they came and asked if I would do that. And I finally said yes. And so that's how that got started. That has now been seen by, I don't know, it's a minimum of 20 million people. Oh, yeah. And that's my other go to. Like, I say to people when they're like, oh, I don't believe you, Nikki. I don't believe in the Gerson therapy. Who's this Max Gerson guy and all the research that he contributed to? So I just say, you know what? Read the China study, 
go to whole, read whole, and then also forks over knives. And most people who come to me and say, hey, I've been diagnosed with an illness, can, I, can you teach me how to reverse it with food? They often say it was because they watched Forks Over Knives and read the China study. That is what enabled them to even pick up the phone and book a session or an appointment with me. There's one more uh, a film. I don't really know that. It's called Plant Pure Nation. Yes. Yeah. Watch that as that well. The same producer as Forks Over Knives. It was my oldest son who was the director. Oh, wow. And, uh, right now, uh, that producer, John Corey, uh, is now working again with my son, doing yet a third film, and working with us uh, on on some things. And um, we we remain quite close. So we got some more very exciting projects uh, about to happen. Uh, Amazing. So that, well, where did I go with all this? Uh, yeah, the the point is that there's quite an audience out there now. I think. Yeah. So I'm kind of hoping that this new book will be seen for what I hope it will be seen. And that is talking about the whole idea that here we have this information in this day and time. That's been, we've been working with it now for a couple of decades. We have this information is really quite extraordinary in, in a practical sense. Mm -hmm. uh, yet at the same time, as you posed the question at the beginning, at the same time, how can we have this information and not have it be better known? Why is it not better known? I mean, Dr. Gerson, uh, really, I, I, I saw, I read some of his testimony that he had to give in the U.S. Senate at the time. Of course, I talked to Charlotte about that, too. I mean, he really uh, paid a price, in a sense. Uh, and uh, it was too bad. But uh, not unlike you, because Mac, like what Charlotte went through and what um, Dr. Max Gerson went through, and for anybody who's listening to this and don't know what we're talking about, you know, Max Gerson was he tried to give all of his um, case studies, his journals, his his patients' diagnoses with their follow up treatment, showing that he had successfully reversed end stage cancer and he tried to give that to the american medical association to the pharmaceutical association said you need to look at this research he published you know i think over 300 papers on you know this potassium sodium imbalance on like all the different he he used the reductionist approach um with his studies because that was the only way that he could publish studies so he wasn't able to obviously right. do clinical trials on the gerson therapy together but he broke down the therapy into its minute parts to show people why we need to have iodine in the diet, why we need to have um, nutrients from plants and not just, you know, individual nutrients in supplement form, but also from the whole food itself. He broke it down so that people would understand. But I mean, he was robbed. He, like his studies were stolen. His um, case studies and patient files were stolen. Um, people were fired who had any um, interaction and wanted to promote the Gerson therapy on his behalf, whether it was politically or economically or on me media. And so Max Gerson, like he was put through the ringer and he was told that medical students could, would not be able to graduate if they worked with him. Um, there were so many things that he was up against, but I We've just heard from you as well, Dr. Campbell, that you know you had to face that as well, having millions of dollars in funding not given to you, and the same thing happened to Max Gerson. But the same things happened to us. Like we're, you know, we're not even. I'm still doing my PhD, so I'm not entrenched in um, the academic side from an employment standpoint. Um, and already, I've been told by professors that 
you know what, I have no qualifications to talk about cancer and nutrition, so therefore I can't submit a proposal um, to do research on that. And I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense. Um, we've had death threats. I was in China and I was brought to China to teach 600 physicians last year on food as medicine and the Gerson therapy. They actually did a clinical trial. And so we went around traveling, um, teaching all these physicians. And one of the members of our team who organized the whole trip, she had a death threat and at the on the last day where they sent out an email with that showed her being beaten up um, by whoever and saying you know if you don't stop what you're gonna what you're doing you're you know this is what you're gonna look like and that scared the daylights out of me because I have three kids and you know so I thought okay well maybe I won't go back to China just yet and we don't know who sent it and our restaurants we even received a letter from the FDA not that we have the FDA in Canada but saying that we're not allowed to promote our restaurant as being healthy food and if we do that they're gonna come in and and take like essentially do whatever it takes to make sure that we're not in operation and it was all on formal letterhead and obviously it wasn't the FDA but it was somebody who does not want you know nutritional medicine to succeed right right so it's wow. so I you know I see what you've been up against and I'm in complete awe that you know you've persevered all of these years um, but I think you've done it in a very smart way like you said like being involved in you know policy boards being involved in organizations where you can slowly you know trickle in this information but I mean we met with the I was invited to a meeting with the Public Health Agency of Canada and this is where I say that when you're like Canada's ahead I'm like absolutely not because <laughs> the Public Health Agency of Canada had 29 million dollars to give towards um, type 2 diabetes um, management and when I said what does management look like to you they said well we need to get more people taking their insulin and diagnosed and taking their insulin and we need to get people riding their bikes and I said why wouldn't we just reverse the disease? It's so easy to reverse. And the people in the meeting almost fell off their chairs when I said that we can reverse type 2 diabetes. And they said, yeah. that's not possible. And they said, well, and the third thing, their third mandate was to get people off sugar. And I said, sugar's not the cause of diabetes. It's this animal fat and protein. And they were like, well, no, that's not the science behind it. I'm like, what science are you reading? So this is why I'm like, we are, and this just happened last year. So, you know, this didn't happen 200 years ago or in, you know, the early 1900s. Right. This is like 2018 last year that this is what these people in power. And of course, the person who's managing this $29 million budget, I mean, he's suffering from obesity. I can see he was sweating profusely and that was definitely from um, heart condition that I could see. He probably, I didn't ask him if he had diabetes, but I wouldn't be surprised if he was pre-diabetic. Like he had no understanding and this is who we have in government managing billion, millions of dollars and spreading messages that aren't true. Right? Wow. Yeah. Well, uh, as we know, I mean, that's been a history of that uh, and it still continues to this day. I'm kind of hopeful, though, that uh, we might have an opportunity to uh, change that course. Uh, because That's now what I want to know about. <laughs> yeah, well, we have, we have now access to the Internet. We didn't have that before. What you're doing right here, for example, I mean, we're having this conversation. We've never met. You're doing your thing. You're working across the whole continent. And, uh, and then I, I just, a couple of days ago, I was with a woman in India who is running this organization to train uh, CEOs better leadership skills. And she was asking the same question. I, she's not a, she was not a nutritionist. 
she's uh, understand wanted to understand how could I essentially almost still be alive, <laughs> and sort of talking about this this way of getting those kinds of things going. So who we have internet, we can tell all kinds of stories, right. and I think that's going to basically this is people power because now we we do have we do have uh, some mechanisms to do that, and so the more we can spread the word. And the other side of the coin is too, just to follow up on this, one of the questions I, I, I found it difficult to know how to answer it, um, but I think I'm getting a feel for it. Namely, let's imagine that uh, everybody listens to what we're saying. And let's imagine that they all did that. I think it's fair to say that 80% of the total healthcare costs would disappear. 100%. And I think that's a conservative estimate, to be honest about it. Some people in medicine think I'm crazy, but I, I that can be documented uh, quite easily. Uh, what if what if that? Well, that means that an awful lot of people are going to be out of work, and 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 job security is a very important thing to everyone. And so, if all of a sudden you lose that number of people, they're suddenly going to then it'll be gradual, of course. But uh, we have to find ways for re-engaging them and other you know, meaningful work where they can get uh, wages and pay. And so that's a hard question to answer. But in my view, the best way to answer that, rather than tackling it up front too much, uh, it basically starts off with information. Let the public know. Let the public really get to know how important this is. And then once that begins to occur, the public, I have great faith in the human, in the human society, uh, when these kind of crises, as you will, sort of emerge, and it may happen pretty fast once it starts going, uh, then it behooves the society to, I mean, they, they figure out ways to have a new work. And there is new work. I mean, food production, for example, can change course. Exactly. Everybody can spend more time, and, and small farmers can you have more opportunities to produce the food that we all would like to have. Um, and you know, and then there's a lot of healthcare kinds of work that could be, people could be employed and government can stand in too to help out in that effort. And that's what one of the things they should do. Um, the chances of that happening in Canada still, I would say might be better because you have a more, a slightly more socialist system than we do here. We have an intensive, intense capitalist system. And uh, I'm, I'm free market on the one hand, but on the other hand, the free market ideas have gotten out of hand. Agree. And it's uh, just, uh, you know, so we, we have to talk about that subject. Yeah. Um, but I think there's ways, most importantly, let the information come out because everybody deserves it and let people start thinking collectively, you know, how they can, uh, if they lose their job, well, we have to work in some ways to make sure that they're, they're, uh, taken care of until they get retrained or something like that. Yeah. Well, I have the idea that every doctor out there should become a farmer, at least part-time because when they're a farmer, they can also become a researcher. So they're contributing to healthy food production and that, and I'm not talking about animal farming. I'm talking about, you know, raising 
you know, squash and tomatoes and carrots and onions, right. that farmer, and then they can see, see the research happening right in front of them because they'll see it in the earthworms and how they migrate through the soil. They'll see it in the microbiome and the fact that you can't farm nowadays because we've decimated our soils with so many, you know, toxins, especially glyphosate. So how do you rebuild that? So they're going to learn the science of rebuilding soil, which is the same science as rebuilding our constitution, right? Our, our human body and our That's microbiome right. and our guts and our cells, right? It's the same. By the way, while you're saying that, I happen to, meet, happen to have met during the last couple of years uh, a doctor, medical trained doctor, who uh, bought a farm outside of New York City. And he's joining, you know, agriculture with medicine in a sense. Um, and in fact, uh, I spent some time with him and, and somebody you might want to interview too. Who's that? It's Ron Weiss, W-E-I-S-S. -S. Okay. I'm going to get in touch with him for sure. The other doctor that I we had on our podcast recently is Dr. Zach Bush, and he's out of Maryland, and he's doing the same thing. He's all about soil regeneration. He has a plant-based whole foods um, clinic where he now he's actually hung up his white coat because he's a medical doctor, and now he teaches plant-based whole food nutrition for the reversal of disease, but he's partnered now with all the farming organizations, um, and he travels around the world teaching farmers how to regenerate soil so that they can grow clean, real, plant-based food. And then through that, we can collectively reverse this epidemic, you know, chronic disease epidemic. So he's another amazing doctor. So I'm going to connect Dr. Zach Bush and Dr. Um, uh, is it Weiss or Weiss? Weiss. Weiss, Weiss. as well, yeah. yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, I will tell you another person too. Uh, it's our daughter, actually. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, she uh, graduated Cornell, a couple degrees, and one in nutrition, one in the, uh, more of the social kind of things. Uh, then she got a PhD in education. It's the kind of education that has to do with, um, she, she calls it global roots, mm. you know, uh, transcendent borders, in other words. She went to the Peace Corps after she finished, spent, uh, had a fantastic time for a couple of years in the Dominican Republic in the mountains. Yeah. And she came and raised some money and built two schools back in the mountains where there were no schools. And then she met a fellow, she married and had two children. And those two boys now themselves have just graduated from university. And one of them, uh, actually, uh, University of North Carolina, one of them just got uh, the award for the best writer in the university. And he's the one working with me on the new book, uh, I will say. Uh, but anyhow, what, what she did, she went back to the Dominican Republic. She's been bringing down students from the United States, both university-based students, like you know, exchange like that, yeah. as well as high school students. And what she's working on is she's built a place in the mountains, and she's working on sustainable agriculture. She's producing food and wanting to show how, uh, you know, you can, it's sustainability sort of thing. That's her other son, and the other son is right now just finishing up uh, making a new course, a new certificate program for our online course on sustainable uh, sustainable food production. So the join the food uh, food environment issue. Uh, so one of them is to say working a book as a writer. The other, she now has this place in uh, in the Dominican Republic where she's bringing down students for conferences. Uh, What's your daughter's name? How do I find her? 
Well, you've oh, heard is, uh, her name is, she goes by Campbell. She does her. Okay. But uh, it's Leanne, L-E-A-N-N-E. The A is capitalized. The L and the A are capitalized. Okay. Leanne. And uh, she lives in uh, Salcedo, near Salcedo, the Dominican Republic. But uh, or she's got an email. It's, it's been, we, we've been down there. She has this, she built this place. And she's not now married. That marriage didn't last. But her two sons are going to be working a lot with her. And she's, uh, this is a building for which she has a nice living space in one end of it. And a beautiful office up in the, like the third floor looking down across the valley. The rest of it is a, is a forum or an auditorium that seats 100 people. Wow. And so she brings people there and, and she shows she's got, she lives all of pretty much on her own food that she raises. And now she just bought some new land. She's building these, uh, what do they call them? Uh, aircretes, a word you may not have heard. And oh. aircrete is a building that's uh, designed. It's all, all concrete, but with windows in it. And it's rounded like this. Yeah. And so it's earthquake-proof. It's also uh, hurricane-proof with the hurricanes there. And so she's got about eight of these, and that's the community that she's building. And they're, they're being built very fast. Then she can bring, out, bring down peace, uh, people to get involved in these conversations and to see what it's like, to see the effect of food on the environment and how the environment is being destroyed right there in that area by the substitution of, of cattle for, for trees and how the water dries up and how you can restore it. It's so exciting. That is uh, amazing. I want to have her on the podcast as well because she's doing incredible work. And the reason why I'm smiling so hugely is because I have three girls and I wonder like, you know, do I talk about this too much at home? I have clients that show up at my house asking on like me how to do the person therapy. So we invite them in for dinner and they sit down. I mean, my kids are surrounded by the, these conversations all the time. So I wonder if they're going to wow. go out and become dairy farmers or if they will go into, um, you know, how, how are they? How uh, my are youngest. They? My youngest is seven, and, oh no, eight years old now. She just turned eight last week. And then I have a 12-year-old and I have a 14-year-old. Oh, wow. The, they would, uh, she, she brings down high school students. Uh, the, the youngest one, 14, I mean, would almost be in a position if, if we're adventurous. She oh, she would, she would do it, actually. She um, just did her yoga teacher training last year, and she worked, she's worked at our restaurant. She helps out there um, every summer, and she loves working in there. She's one of our best employees, and you can go in and ask her anything about nutrition, and she'll just start spilling off yeah. science. Like, it's beautiful. Um, and, you know, sometimes customers come in, and they're like, you know, but I need to eat my meat, and she'll always have a response for them around, you know, how much protein we need. So she's, I think she'd be ready to go for sure. Wow, what a team you have, a team of family members that are doing things to change the world. And you know, all of this does give me hope. And it, like you said earlier, we need that hope um, to be able to keep going and keep doing this stuff. And, you know, and we know that there's going to be a tipping point. And I believe that all of this work that, you know, Dr. Gerson's been doing, you've been doing, your daughter and your grandchildren are doing, and I mean, and all the other amazing researchers and scientists and doctors that are in the plant-based movement. I mean, yeah, it's bound to reach a tipping point, but sometimes it still seems like we're so far. But it also has just been in the lifespan of human history. It's just still been a blip in human history where we've gone really severely off course. So, 
Yeah. So, so one of the things I really wanted to touch on with you because I was the MC at Charlotte Gerson's memorial, the family, it was really an honor to be asked by um, their family to honor Charlotte in that way. And so we got to read your um, beautiful, beautiful tribute to Charlotte, but all of us were so surprised by your wife's story. It was something that none of us knew about. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Cause I know she was diagnosed and was she diagnosed with cancer? Yes. And tell, tell us about the story of her being diagnosed and then how you made the decision um, around her treatment. Because I'm sure a lot of people would love to know, you know, what you were faced with this. So you had to, you know, make decisions that were. Right. Um, decisions. Well, uh, we, we gradually got into this over the years, starting in about 1980, a long time ago. It took us about 10 years to make some substantial changes. Uh, and finally, we uh, pretty much got there we thought in the early nineties, but in any case, um, like some people, you drift a little bit. And so in uh, 2005, when our China study came out, uh, that was in January, 2005, uh, in December that year, in the fall of that year, uh, she had a, a sort of a mole on her leg that she just was just a routine checkup or something. They checked it out and uh, they found that it had my, it was melanoma. It had gone into her lymph glands, and uh, it was pretty serious. So it was uh, declared, you know, uh, advanced melanoma. And we were surprised because we had been sort of doing things more or less right, but not completely. Um, and so that changed things quickly. But in any case, she went to the doctor. They took off their little leg problem, but that wasn't really part of it. But then they wanted to do chemotherapy. And they wanted to, they were, had her scheduled for chemotherapy. And they had her scheduled also for uh, surgery to remove that whole uh, lymph gland basin in her leg. And that's pretty serious. The combination of chemotherapy and that. And so I was with her. The doctor didn't know who I was. I didn't want to say that because it was her decision. And so she, the doctor said to her, well, this is on a Friday. He said, uh, like, I think it was Tuesday. He said, we have an opening. We could do something. And she looked at him. She said, I'm not doing it. And he said, what? This basically was kind of reacted. She said, I'm not doing it. And she said, I'm doing nothing. And he kind of freaked out. He said, and I, it was quite uh, informative to me because he, he said, if you come back here in six months, there's no way I cannot take care of you. And so, you know, it kind of frightened her. I mean, you tell that to people. I'm starting to wonder myself. Well, of course, you know, yeah. What, what is she going to do? But uh, I had the good fortune of having met the pathologist who was looking at her cells. And I could see that in the uh, so-called lymph gland, there's, a, there's a, a part of the lymph gland called the sentinel area. Mm -hmm. And in the sentinel area is where they took the sample, the bioassay. And sure, the melanocytes, the black you know, uh, cells were there, but they were distributed in the cell uh, in rather uniquely. And my son, uh, our oldest son, discovered this guy in England who was working with this concept of using that as an indication of cancer. In any case, he had uh, worked with 38 patients and found out that people whose melanocytes were in the region where hers were, that when they uh, went on, they, it, uh, it was able to be reversed. 
So she was happy to hear that. I was too, of course. And, and so uh, she did nothing, but only just to live with it, what he said and how um, he, was, he was actually, you know, really rude and really unpleasant. And I'm thinking to myself, how many cancer patients go to the doctor and the doctor becomes really heavy handed? Oh, all the time. Every, every one of my clients has a story exactly like that. Either that or the, the oncologist is very sugary sweet and they're like, but I care so much about you and I want you. So, you know, if you don't go and do this, like, you know, just think about your kids. And so they're, and so then my client comes back to me and be like, Oh, my oncologist, they just, they're so kind to me. Like they've become my friend. So people say that. And I'm like, at the end of the day, no oncologist wants to see you die. But at the end of the day, they want you to do treatment because that's all they know. That's the only right. thing they can offer you. So they will get you to do it, whether it's a heavy handed, like I'm going to be so rude and mean to you and scare the living daylights out of you, or they're going to be so sugary sweet around it. So You're I've seen absolutely both. right. Yeah. There's a, uh, there's a word for the sugary sweet kind. What's it called? Uh, something. I forget the word, <laughs> but I know exactly the kind of people talking about. Well, ever since then, she's had no problem. Of course, uh, when I went to the pathologist, by the way, and I saw the distribution of the melanocytes and the cells and so forth, I got the impression that she may have had that disease a little before. And it was actually in, it was already in regression huh. when they looked at it. It may have been a regression. Oh, that, from so, switching the diet earlier. I saw with our animals, experimental animals, I saw the same thing. We were actually working with a lesion it was called, uh, they were called GGT, foci, whatever. And uh, they're, they're the ones that would come and go. And they're early on, you know, they're leading to cancer for sure. They have a 99% correlation with cancer. So they are early cancer. But we could turn them on and off, yeah. you know, very easily. And I, so I started thinking that I think that condition that she had, that, that microscopic um, pathology report was such that it indicated she was probably on her way back because she had been already doing the diet for a while. Right. And uh, so whether that was the case or not, I don't can't say for certain, but one thing is clear. She's had no problem. You know, for the next, was that she's had 14 years. Right. And the same thing happened to Howard Strauss, who's Dr. Max Gerson's grandson um, and the son of Charlotte Gerson. And he met his wife and she had already had um, melanoma twice and she had already been treated twice with chemotherapy. And I want to bring her on the show to uh, talk about her experience as well. And but, you know, Howard had just asked her to marry, um, marry him. And she said yes. And then all of a sudden they found out that for the third time the cancer would come back. And so they said, OK, chemo again. And she was about to go down that route, but Howard's like, I'm the grandson of Dr. Max Gerson. Like, are you really going to go down that path? And has it even worked for you? And so she did the Gerson therapy, and that was 30 years ago. And wow. has it come back? Wow. Yeah. You know, the, the Gerson thing, incidentally, I got really caught up in that too, because in 1994, uh, you know, when I'm on the campus teaching, I did a lot of teaching, I organized a new course. Uh, it was called Vegetarian Nutrition. I wasn't too excited about that name. But anyway, we did that. And um, the, I had one paper I wanted the students to see first. It was a paper of Hildebrand. Right, Gar Hildebrand. Hildebrand. You know, uh, reporting on what the Gerson Clinic had done. There was, there was one case where the data had been reported. Mm -hmm. It was quite amazing. 
you know, six-fold decrease in stage four cancer. More, I mean, it was really quite amazing. And uh, so I just had the students do that. And my course, in fact, in some ways, started off with that sort of flagship study. And then I said, okay, let's go from here and let's see what else can we learn about all this. So, yeah, that uh, was the question. And I think that's incredible because sometimes just planting the seed to open up people's minds, which will get them to, you know, say, okay, well, there's one study, like maybe I should look into this further and see if there's other people that have published things that are similar. And there was a study done by uh, Dr. Lechner out of Austria. And I know when I met you, I think it was at the plant-based, uh, uh, the, no, the PCRM conference last year. Was it there? No, or was it? No, then the oh, plantrician, not the plantrician. It's the um, the other conference in California, the holistic nutrition conference. Oh, maybe the Marriage College of Lifestyle Medicine. May, yes, I believe it was that. So I, I and I remember you just come off stage. There was like two hundred physicians lined up to talk to you all about food as medicine. You delivered that incredible talk about how you know this this research has been there for two hundred years. Like we need to pay attention. But the one thing that I got out of that conference um, and the PCRM conference is all of these scientists and physicians are presenting this research on nutrition, but nobody's teaching the physicians in the audience how to do it. You know, they're presenting the science, but no one's saying, you know, what is the actual, like, how many carrots do you eat a day? Or, you know, how do you incorporate this? And everybody has a little bit of a different twist, like lots of nuts and seeds to no nuts and seeds. And, you know, so I know that a lot of the physicians that I talked to at the conference, they were, you know, they were shocked. They were like, oh my gosh, this research is there, but what do I do? And one physician is like, how do I ever prescribe medicine again? And, you know, but then they didn't know how to move forward with this new information about nutrition. So after all of these, I watched about literally about 200 people come and talk to you in this incredibly long lineup. And I got to bump into you at the lunch table, I believe outside or on the patio. And, you know, the question that I had is it's amazing how all, a lot of these researchers there were presenting their studies as though they were brand new. Like we just come across this information that food is medicine. And, um, but then it was just left at that. And when I did ask you about the Gerson therapy, and you know, you said, and you told me that you were a lifetime friend of Charlotte Gerson, you had all this respect for the Gerson therapy. And that gave me confidence because I feel like I've been doing this alone. So that was some validation for me. So I thank you for that. But I loved your comment because you said, but the one thing I've never understood is this whole coffee enema business. And, um, and you just said you hadn't you know, really looked into okay. it. But there was a study done by Dr. Lechner out of Austria um, where they actually administered the coffee enema before surgery. So these patients who were going through surgery and after surgery. And what they saw is that they needed less pain medication. They needed and they healed faster and they needed less medications overall post-surgery and the healing took place faster. So that was... Um, very yeah no it was very interesting and i mean and it is a hard thing for people to wrap their head around because most people i think are you know they're bootstrapping it when it comes to um all of this information trying to piecemeal everything together and trying to figure out well how do you do this to reverse disease and the gerson therapy does give you the step-by-step -step, you know guidelines including like you take this much of this and you know this much of that and this is the ingredients you use in the soup and everything like that but um my whole point around it is that I think sometimes just introducing someone to one paper, which is exactly how Max Gerson got into this, one, per, one person put one paper across his desk and said, hey, did you know that there was a relationship between diet 
and disease. And that's what started it off for him as well. So I, I have to say that, um, yeah, just thank you for doing that when you were teaching, because I bet you had changed a lot of your students' lives just to be able to be presented with that information. Just one thing. Working in, uh, in the medical community has actually been one of the more positive experiences because a lot of communities, uh, especially professional communities, they don't light up like that. But I think the doctors are, are actually start. They, they didn't in the beginning, but now uh, when I speak to physician groups, uh, there's a lot more interest and understanding. And I think it's growing rapidly. Oh, I think so too. So that, that's, that's real positive because we were, to have the physicians on board, I mean, obviously, that's the first first group that's, you know, in contact with the public and they've got to be on board or else we would have problems forever. But so. so what advice do you have for physicians? Cause I work with a lot of physicians and I mean, a lot of these physicians are suffering from their own mental health issues, their own diseases. Um, and then they discover food as medicine and that puts them into this mental whirlwind because they're in the medical institution that they can't really extract themselves from, but they don't know how to practice within it. So what advice do you have for the physicians out there when they discover nutritional medicine and how do they move forward? Do you ever give advice on that? Or what are your yeah, thoughts? I, I, uh, I do uh, talk to people a lot. Of course, I'm not a physician, so I rely on what others are saying. Um, I actually, uh, the son, our son who co-authored the Shine study with me, uh, he's a physician, uh, and he uh, now has a really nice position at a major medical school. Uh, he, in fact, he's the medical director oh, of a significant program in actually weight management, but he uh, took the position because they were letting him organize a research program in that, you know, on the whole food plant-based diet. So now he has uh, funding to uh, already start the first study, which is uh, doing a study on the effect of the whole food plant-based diet on women with metastatic breast cancer. That was the first round uh, at stage four, and uh, this, you know it's returned. And a second study on uh, chronic kidney disease. Mm -hmm. And so he, uh, at the university, his wife also is a physician, they organize this program, and they are concerned, they concern themselves with how to um, you know, talk to doctors about this. Um, there are people at the university, at the medical school, who have, uh, they recruited him. I mean, it's quite nice because that wouldn't have happened before because they knew his background. And now um, he's got a couple other people in other departments, you know, in oncology, for example, who are, you know, they're listening and he gets uh, quite a lot of lectures himself. Uh, and he's a very good lecturer also. So I, I, if you want to talk to a, a physician who has, you know, done that, uh, he would be a good one. Another yeah, I'd love one, to talk to him for sure. And another guy is in uh, two more people, a woman in, I gotta say San, Sanjay, I forget, I think I, I, I can get her name, but she, she had an experience with MS. Oh, Dr. Sarae uh, yes, Stancic. Yes, yes, yes. Stancic. Uh, she's really good. Um, and then there's uh, Rob Osfeld, O-S-T-F-E-L-D. Okay. He's at Montefiore Hospital in New York. Yeah, uh, I will both, find their information. Both of those. Uh, Stancy, uh, she, she, I think she's outstanding. And Osfeld is very committed. 
what he does, he gets patients in the hospital, he has an active practice. All of his patients who end up in, in bed, uh, uh, he first thing he makes them do is wash forks over knives. And it really has quite an effect on him. Uh, and uh, so he's, he's a really nice guy. Uh, and uh, he speaks fairly often at different conferences. And you know what's interesting about that, going back to this whole, you know, where I feel Canada's behind. So for four years, we've been working with the provincial government to get our food from our restaurants into the hospitals. And in, on April 1st, we finally managed to get um, our food into hospitals, which is, you would think that's amazing. And, you know, we have a contract with them right now, and so I don't want to blow it, but I have to just, you know, put this interesting conversation that we had out there because they said, okay, well, with your messaging and when you're doing marketing, you can't really market to anybody internally because of the fact that if we give you the right to market, you, you as, yourself as a vendor, you, we have a product, we'd have to give Coca-Cola the right to market as well. And so, which is understandable, but then the whole reason they wanted us in there is because they want to provide healthy food that's in accordance with the Canadian Food Guide, and, um, but then now we can't market. But then the other thing that they said, which was really interesting, was they said, well, also, like, don't say that your food can reverse disease, because if there's the gentleman who has kidney dialysis who's in the hospital and he sees that, it might make him feel bad that he didn't know this information before. You know, so here we are now, we're in this amazing position with our food in the hospital, which they, you know, we're in a dark, danky cafeteria, um, you know, that most of the people who even know anything about food and medicine, they're like, not going to go down there. But now we can't let them know that we're even there. So it's really, you know, when you make two steps forward, and I just have to accept that it's sometimes one step back, and it means we need to get creative. But it's like, if we can't even put our message out there that you can get healthy food downstairs, then it makes it really challenging. And if it's all about not offending somebody who's already sick in the hospital, whereas I love what, um, you know, you're was it your son that's doing this or Dr. Osfeld that is making them watch Forks Over Knives and they are a patient in the bed. That's the Osfeld. Yeah, like that is an amazing thing. And this is what we need to be doing on a global scale right. is sharing the research and these and in the easy to digest formats, like these documentaries in your book, and just give it to them while they're in the hospital. And then they might make different decisions like your wife did. Right. right. By the way, on food, it sounds like I'm promoting what my family's doing, but you know, I will tell you. Do my, it. <laughs> My oldest son uh, is the one who did the film, Plant right. uh, Nation, and he's the one who has all the, or his uh, nonprofit has uh, wellness groups. He also has a line of food uh, that now has been picked up by 1,500 stores in the United States. Uh, it's low, it's plant based, low fat. Uh, a couple of them have uh, a little more, uh, some of the nut sauce than the others, but basically, that's all they have, those foods have been tested you know, in uh, immersion trials. And uh, the big uh, grocery company called Publix. Okay, we don't have that in Canada, but I know it from the States, yeah. And then there's another one, I forget the name of it, and now he's, he's apparently talking another two or three. Uh, that looks like it's really going to be taken off because wow. that, and so far, it's really done well. Uh, they moved it, you know, when it first introduced the stores, you started at the lower level. Yeah. It's been elevated now to eye level. So it's a, uh, that's, I think, quite tasty and it's very effective. What's the name of this to... company? We totally want to promote it. This is amazing. 
plant, it's all called the website of Plant Pure Nation. Oh, okay. So that's the name of his company for that makes the food. That's the name of the you know, company as well as the name of the film that he did. Yeah, we'll definitely include all this information about your daughters, um, you know, her, the work that she's doing, the Plant Pure Nation, the work that your son is doing. I mean, I, I mean, I agree with what you said. It definitely is about getting the information out there and sharing the stories because, you know, we are still an oral society for the most part where we learn by sharing these stories with other people. So it is mm -hmm. really important that we do that. Wow. You have a very incredible family, Dr. Campbell. Well, they do it. Thanks to my wife. She's Thanks. the one who's going to go. Okay, you're not going to take any credit for that. <laughs> no. uh, there's a, uh, you, 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 did I hear you say you took our course or didn't? I can't, somebody told me at least. So a lot of our students that go through, because we have a program that teaches um, our students how to teach the Gerson therapy feathers and how to connect them with a Gerson practitioner. And so it's called, it's our nutrition and detox training. But a lot of our students, they go on to do their master's in public health and they go on to start, you know, food companies all around the principles. Um, and then we had several students who've gone on to take your course as well. So I haven't taken it, but I want to take it. And so I brought it up yesterday thinking like, oh, am I going to sign up for it now? But I am doing my PhD right now. So it would be a lot on my plate. Well, uh, send me your, uh, well, I have your thing here. I'll, I'll send it down for maybe some dispensation to sort of get you into the program if you want to do it. I would, you know, I would love to do it. And it's definitely been on my list to do it for a long time. And it was just a matter of, you know, with all our businesses and my school to find a time to do it. But I would love to do it. Mm. Yeah. We have a new, uh, new uh, that's a certificate program, as you may know, but we have a new certificate program uh, also coming out uh, on the food and environment. My uh, grandson, actually, actually the one who's been heading that up and developing all the material for that course. Uh, it's now all, you know, the content is already prepared. They're just now interviewing some people, some experts in different disciplines to come and participate in our course. Wow. That'll be available sometime in a few months down the road. Okay, that's amazing because we have one, we have one universe. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. The environment food connection is a really important one, as you know. Oh, food and environment. And this is how I, I wrote my first paper on soil and selenium and disease 22 years ago when yeah. I was in one course. They offered one course in my university called um, Agriculture and the Environment. Um, but they weren't teaching about disease at all. It was more about the politics of subsidies and, you know, and how that related to, um, you know, and the effects of, you know, animal-based farming. So they were teaching that 22 years ago, which is amazing. But I found this one study and, you know, I talk about how it was on the old Mac computer with the green cursor, you know, like there was, it wasn't easy to do research and, you know, nobody was shipping books back and forth back then. So it was hard to do research, but I wrote my first paper on selenium and soil and cancer. That was my first introduction to the fact that our body needs nutrients and these micronutrients, not the macronutrients, but the micronutrients in order to be able to prevent disease. And my professor at the time, this is the professor who wrote a big F on my paper in red, like right across the whole thing, and said, you're not qualified to talk about this subject matter. Wow, that's ridiculous, so ridiculous. It's so ridiculous. Of course, who knows? Maybe he had somebody who was going through cancer and this concept about nutrition and cancer, who knows? But, you know, I still persevered and I ended up learning about, you know, the Gerson therapy and studying that extensively. And then I went and did my pre-med sciences 
to actually go to med school because I thought this is where I could have the biggest impact. And um, I wrote my MCAT. So, but in the, it was amazing because having studied nutrition before going in and doing my pre-med sciences, it was an eye opener because actually it's right there in the basic first year and second year biology, biochemistry, biophysics. The answers are in there. It actually says our body needs nutrients at high levels and that we can turn cancer on and off like a light switch. In my you know, pre-med studies, it was said there, but I remember a doctor who tried to talk me out of going to med school and probably succeeded. He said, um, don't worry about remembering the bio, the biology and biochemistry of the body. He said, you know what? You're going to have to reserve all your brain power for remembering the diagnosis and the treatment and the pharmaceutical drugs. He says, that's all you're going to have space for in your brain. And I that's seriously, cool. and you, I almost you, wanted to cry. You must've known the, uh, the Keishan disease story in China. I, it's ringing a bell. Did you write about it in the China study? Uh, I don't think I did, but um, there was a study done in China uh, back in the uh, 1970s. I went to China the first time in uh, 1981. And as, uh, as a result of uh, a Chinese the senior author of that study had come to the United States. He was the first Chinese to come, first scientist to come to the United States to study. And he came to my laboratory, and that's how... We, that's how the whole thing got started. But he and his group in China had done this story, this study on selenium and uh, heart disease, childhood heart disease, oh. uh, endemic cardiomyopathy, I think they called it. And so uh, what it turned out to be the case, there's a band geographically, there's a band from Northeast China, the Heilongjiang community down to the far Southwest. It's kind of just an Arab band all the way across the country where, uh, Selenium is very deficient. And what they had discovered uh, many, many years ago was that uh, the, there were children there who were getting this endemic cardiomyopathy with a lack of selenium. So then they went and started sub, uh, supplementing these children with selenium. Uh, and that was all in Chinese. That was, uh, no, they hadn't been publishing anything in the West at the time. And that study, the guy who was the head of that is the one who came to my laboratory and worked for a year. Uh, and he was the senior author of that study. It was eventually published in the West. Wow. But it was about selenium, which you were just saying. Selenium and, uh, in this case, heart disease. Yeah. And it was, it, it was soil. It was, a, it was basically a soil problem because it was this geographic uh, band wow. across China where it just turned out that selenium was deficient. And, people, and the children all occurred in that band. That's amazing. Yeah, and I came across it that I, I probably did come across that study because it sounds so familiar. And there was a similar study done, um, and I think it was in Taiwan as well, and it had to do with iodine. And they found that there were high miscarriage rates in this um, one farming region where when they looked at it, they saw that the soil was deficient in iodine. So what they did is they divided up the farmland and they replenished the soil or the iodine in the soil in one half of the farmland that one half of the community could only eat from and the other half of the community, they left it alone. And sure enough, with 
right away, the miscarriage rates dropped significantly as well. And so again, it comes back to, and they almost dropped to nil. Um, and so, and Max Gerson wrote extensively about how we need iodine um, to be able to treat chronic disease and cancer and how, you know, our soils are so deficient with it. So, you know, and it, this is the thing though, is that, you know, there's that study from China around selenium and this other study from Taiwan around iodine and everybody's looking for that one hit wonder. Like, is it just the iodine? If I just replenish my diet yeah, with right. selenium and people really need to move away from thinking it's just one nutrient, but right, right. all those nutrients. Um, so, and how do you, you know, I'm imagining you have so many people that come to you and how do you respond to them when they, when they come up to you and they say, so what should I do? What's oh, your, um, what's yes. your one answer to that when you have a couple minutes with people because you have a lineup of 200 people behind who are probably going to ask the same question? That, that's uh, so common. And I, I really feel like I can't answer that question because, uh, you know, there will be occasions, of course, when uh, a single nutrient, you know, a supplement, for example, under some circumstances, you know, might have some effect. And I, I allow for that personally. I mean, I, and that's the kind of thing. That would happen in cases where there is a clear deficiency, number one, uh, or maybe some other extenuated circumstances. So uh, that kind of thing can happen, but maybe in the short run from time to time, okay, but that's not a, that's not a lifestyle uh, strategy because just as you said, it's, it's, that's not it. Uh, it uh, makes a little money for people who want to sell that supplement, but it doesn't work that way, not in the long run. Yeah. So what is a lifestyle strategy then for, that you would share with people to sum it up really easy for our listeners who are on yeah, this podcast? I got two things. I, I, I have to confess that the biology of nutrition and the biology of disease formation or treatment, if you will, that, that biology is infinitely complex. And I really want to emphasize the word infinite because the numbers hardly mean anything to any of us. We can't wrap our brains around it. So it's, and then within all that infinite complexity, there's this amazing uh, demonstration of uh, symphony. You know, somehow things are kept in order. And, and it works. But it works best when you have the right food. So uh, the first thing I say, okay, let's, let's agree that the biology is so complex. And let's say that nature will take care of that for us for the most part. There's two remaining ideas that makes, you know, to simplify things you just said, number one, eat whole food. And just try to eat whole food as much as you can. That means not using the oil or sugar extracted from it, but just use whole food. And, and the second is, don't eat any food that has animal protein in it. You see, I came from the other side of the fence. I was all about promoting the consumption of more animal protein, so forth. And you know, I, I find it hard to say, you know, the best way is to avoid animal protein. Those just simple ideas, eat whole food, don't eat animal protein. I can't believe it can be any simpler than that. I love and it. I see it just as a goal. I don't like to see it as a black and white prescription. They say, okay, here's the goal. And when the closer you get, the person gets to that, the better they're going to be. So if you want to really get it right, go the whole way. Let your body adapt, and you'll find, yeah, you can adapt to this. You lose your food allergies and your taste preferences. They change. And when you get there, you're home free. Then it becomes a way of life. So there's two ideas. Whole food and no animal protein. 
That's amazing. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I think for the people listening, I mean, it really, it, I mean, Charlotte Gerson used to say it. She, at the beginning of her lecture, she would say, okay, what I'm about to tell you is going to seem like it's so simple that you're not going to believe me. And she said, but it is so simple. And she would pretty much, you know, the whole lecture would be about those two things, like eat whole food. So like not whole wheat flour, but actually the whole food, like as it was picked from the earth and from the tree and plucked out of the ground and, you know, before it gets manufactured and dismantled and, you know, it gets pulled apart, it's eat the whole thing and eat the skins. Like, you know, you can eat this. Right. A lot of the squash, you know, you can cook it with the skins on. So just do do that. And then the second one as well is, you know, to get off the animal-based protein as well. And the third one now that I actually tell a lot of people is, you know, a lot of times if it has a, like when you're just starting out and it's so complex and, you know, people were taught, read the labels, read the labels, that's so confusing. So I just say, you know what? eat food that just doesn't have a label on it for the next little while until you become super savvy, but just don't eat, don't eat anything with the label. And I mean, when you become savvy, I mean, I'm sure like your son's products and plant pure nation, like obviously it has a label on it, but a lot of people don't know the difference between whole wheat and whole food. And they'll read on the labels. People are so misleading with their marketing that, you know, it traps people in this cycle of eating unhealthy, denatured food that's in a package when they could actually just eat the whole thing and much cheaper too for a lot of people. Because they'll say, well, you know, they might not be able to afford plant pure nation food, you know, because they're buying it for a family of five and they're on a budget of $50 a month for food. But you know what? You can afford a box of potatoes right? Yep. Or a bag of oatmeal or something like that. And you, you know, eat that. And so you, I think those three tips right there are probably your two tips. And then, you know, That's good. Nice. yeah, it's a good, good addition. Yeah. Yeah. I love that Dr. Colin Campbell. I know you have uh, so many things to do probably. I mean, you're running this school and are you still doing a lot of research as well and getting grants no. for that? Uh, my son is sort of uh, now doing that at the medical school and for the most part, um, he he's, uh, it takes a little while to get up to speed on that, but he's got two studies now that has received IRB approval. Wow. And one of them, he always has been recruiting patients, and that's for the breast cancer women. And uh, I'm anxious to see what that'll look like. You know, doing it really well, doing it formally, professionally, so that the results, however they come out, uh, you know, they'll be published. I'm, I'm very partial to that fact yeah. you know that we need to do that kind of stuff that gets into the professional literature not that i'm a great fan of professional literature because a lot of stuff you know is not worth publishing exactly. but you know and without it without it then it's called anecdotal and anytime it's anecdotal it doesn't count well you know the story and, yeah. and uh so we i think uh, it's a good rule to follow yeah, definitely. And, you know, when it comes to studies too, just for the people who are listening, um, you know, maybe just to finish up and wrap things off, I think we'll probably need to do about three more podcasts together, Dr. Campbell, to get all the stories out there and all the questions that I wanted to ask you. But could you just explain to people, because then the other thing that most people say when they're first learning about this is they say, well, send me a study that proves that food is medicine. But I mean, if you can just explain how expensive it is and how hard it is to get funding to conduct a study and the complications around doing studies around holistic, wholesome, you know, complex nutrition. Maybe just talk to that a little bit because I think that'll, and, and maybe instead of asking the question like, well, send me the study, where can they get further information? 
to help them in making that decision. That is an excellent question. In fact, in the book that I'm just now finishing, that is exactly the topic that I'm I discuss in some detail. That perception on the part of many in the public who aren't familiar with scientific ways and means, uh, and, and they oftentimes think that somehow we just do a study, we get an answer, it's yes or no, end of story. That's not the way science works, as you well know. And so uh, I make the argument that science, uh, in almost every case, is seldom we can do a single study and get all the answer we need. If we get the answer we need, in its completeness, doing a single study, that means we're so reductionist at that point, then the information is likely not to be, it's not likely to work in the long run. So we have to, so research becomes a series of studies, series of experiments that, um, you know, and, and you, do, you do an experiment and it's also a series of questions. Research is not, you know, you make a hypothesis, you do the study, you get an answer. That's not the way science is. Starts out with make a hypothesis, observation or just make a hypothesis. You can make any hypothesis, we can make any hypotheses we like, however silly they may be. So, but then the next question, organize the experiment to test to see whether it's true. We get an answer. The answer is always a partial answer at best. We may have to go back and do it a second time to make sure of the results, whatever. But we get an answer, then we ask the next question. And from that, okay, that's interesting, now what? And, and it turns out that in research, it's almost like an endless series of questions. You never get to the final answer. I don't like to say I discovered the absolute truth because it's only what, even the best of studies, even done one time, brilliant results, you can't say, oh, I learned the truth. You may have learned a bit of the truth, but it's only part. So the, the thing is, to just keep that in mind, it's a series of questions series of questions. And eventually, uh, you might reach some places, some, and sometimes you would do a study along the way that uh, it's marginally significant or may, but, but you're pretty convinced it's probably right because of other information. Well, you have a choice there. You can go back and do it again, you know the details, or you can move on. I, I think I believe that enough. I'm gonna take, I'm gonna take the next step. And so it becomes a, a travel. Research is a travel through the forest of mechanisms, a travel through things. And so you get to the other end, you do some more, and then you start knitting together all these results to get a concept of what the whole really means. So that's research. That question you just asked, as I'm asked, it really troubles me. I can't believe you just asked that. I was talking to my wife this morning about that. That is the question that really kind of drives me up the tree. Yeah. Because I can't. I said, well, you know, I, I, we, we haven't really done it. You haven't done it. Why are you talking about it? You know, that kind of thing. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, I can understand people, you know, not knowing this kind of information. But it is a difficult question to answer. It is. And it's expensive to do the research, too. Like, if you're yes. lucky to find the person who's interested in the subject, then they have to get the funding. And then it's not only that, but even if they do get, you know, these incredible results and they want to publish it, um, I think one of the stats is like 50% of studies ever get published, right? And then, you know, and also it's not just about the stuff that's successful. It's about what we learn that also, you know, maybe went against our hypothesis. And that stuff's just as valuable to know as the stuff that comes out in light of your hypothesis. So it is really complex and, 
and really challenging for people to, and people just have to know that sometimes the anecdotal stories are really beneficial as well. When you meet 20 people who said, I changed my diet, is that your wife back there? Yes, yeah, she was just testified. Awesome. But you know, if you meet 20 people who said, hey, I switched to a whole plant-based diet and I reversed my disease, you might want to just give it a try, you know? Yeah. So, right, you just have to get out there and try and see if it's going to work for you because at the end of the day, you're eating food and healthy food and clean food. My research started out with an anecdotal observation. What was that? I was on a golf course in the Philippines. And we, we, our job there was to organize a child feeding program, making sure everybody got enough protein. But my golfing partner was the, uh, my uh, colleague, uh, the medical advisor to the president of the Philippines, actually. He told me on the golf course, he said, hey, he said, you're interested. I just set up a laboratory to explore the cause of liver cancer. He said, you did that. You, you know, he said, I've operated some children four and under for liver cancer. I said, what? So he told me that. I said, okay, well, I didn't really believe that was true. But then I was also at the same time having this responsibility for the nutrition part of it. All of a sudden, I, I, I got the impression, only an impression, totally anecdotal, even weak anecdotal work. It turned out that the, uh, I got the impression that the children most likely to get liver cancer at that young age. Where the one so happens, they were coming from the few families who were rich enough to buy the animal protein. And so that was it. Now I'm faced with a dilemma. Is it true that animal protein might be related to cancer? Here we're trying to promote animal protein. I'm faced with a proposition. Then I saw a study from India on, exper on the experimental animal study that they did, where they got some results just like this. It was an obscure journal. Even the researcher didn't believe it themselves, but it had two pieces of information. One was published but weak. The research didn't believe that that was totally anecdotal. Those are the two studies that I wrote a grant to NIH for to get money. I got the money. I said, I need to study this question. And I had that grant for the next 27 years. Wow. So that's really what started my career. That is an amazing story. And I think people can learn so much from that. Just again, it's just, I, I repeated some of it, just a portion of it, like early cancer. And uh, I got spectacular results. I said, wow. And then I just asked the next question, you know, how does that work? Is this protein, what about that protein? You know, all these kind of things. And I just kept, I just kept following questions because there are always questions. Mm -hmm. Always questions. No matter how well the study might have turned out to be or how big the effect might be, there's another question. Wow. First thing, you know, after 15, 20 years, is my, I said, oh my gosh. There's something here. It's like a wave coming at me with a bunch of information. Yeah, it's I better so change my own mind. So. Well, the more we learn, the more we discover there's so much that we don't know. And so then the questions stem from that. So Dr. Colin, T. Colin Campbell, it has been such an honor having this discussion with you. Thank you for all of the information that you've provided to our listeners. I mean, there's so many incredible nuggets in here and any which one of them is going to inspire, I think, just, you know, thousands of people 
to hopefully go into their kitchen and change the diet. Um, and I'm going to get in touch with your daughter and your son, and we're going to get um, Dr. Weiss on the podcast, and I mean, Dr. Osfeld and Dr. Stancic, so many incredible names you've contributed. So thank you so much for your time. I hope we get to do this again um, in a few months' time, because there's so many more questions now that I have for you, um, naturally. So I appreciate you being on the show. Thank you. Keep up the great work. Thank you. And you as well. And you'll let us know when your book is out because we can't wait to sell that through our restaurants and through all our net networks as well. Thank you very much. Appreciate amazing. It. Thanks, Dr. T. Colin Campbell. Have an amazing day. Thank you. Bye. So I hope you enjoyed that podcast with Dr. Campbell. Please write to us if you'd like to have him on the show again. I know that he would be more than willing to continue our discussion around the Gerson therapy, to continue our discussion around how do we advance policy and create change with making this information available to everyone, not just the few people who have taken the time to educate themselves, but how do we bring this education into mainstream medical schools, mainstream universities and colleges, mainstream learning everywhere. And Dr. Colin Campbell is definitely the person to have the answers behind that. Also, few end notes is that you still have a few days to register for our program. It's our nutrition and detox program. It teaches you how to coach others in using food as medicine to reverse their disease. And this program is based on the Gerson therapy. It is based on the scientific principles behind the Gerson therapy, the art of the Gerson therapy. We teach you how to become a wellness warrior and an advocate by actually having to do the therapy yourself so you can see the direct effect that doing the therapy has on your health and on your life. And then as well, you go out there and you teach it to 12 other people through 12 case studies. You learn how to do proper research. So really good, um, efficacious research and not the kind where you're just reading blogs and looking at people's websites, but where you're actually learning how to decipher the good scientific peer-reviewed journal articles from the other articles that are out there that may even be peer-reviewed, but maybe they're just not designed well, they're biased, and we teach you how to be able to get access to those journal articles, how to read them, interpret them, and how to use them so you can further your learning. You'll be writing a final exam, do, writing a research paper yourself. It is meant for people who have not been in school for ages. You don't have to have ever even gone to post-secondary school. We are teaching you the things that are just not taught in school. So in addition to writing the exam, writing the research paper, taking the 12 case studies, doing the therapy yourself, you, we, you actually get to write a blog so that you can take what you've learned and provide that information to the public. We want you to be able to disseminate the information so that others can learn from you. And lastly, we get you, we coach you on how to give a presentation as well, because some people learn by reading, but other people learn by listening. And we hope that our students are going to be asked to speak at conferences. Many of them have, some of them have started their own businesses. Um, some of them have created their own coaching programs. Some of them have come to work for us as well. So sign up for that program and it starts in September. You can go to our website, which 
I hope by the time that this show airs, it's going to be nicoletterichet.com or richerhealth.ca. You can also find the information on our richerhealthretreatcenter.com website as well. So thanks for staying with us, for listening to this podcast. Write to us, tell us what you think. We're super excited to hear your comments and get your feedback. And please, please share the Eat Real to Heal podcast with those people that you love in your life that you want to inspire and motivate to make those changes that are going to bring true health and happiness and vitality to their life. Eat well, eat clean, be well. Bye-bye.